This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. You're listening to Knowledge at Wharton on Business Radio. Here again is Dan Loney. Welcome back. Hour number two of Knowledge at Wharton here on Sirius XM 132 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. A measles outbreak is hitting Washington State and Northwest Oregon. Over 50 people have been infected so far. Both states allow parents to forego vaccinating their children on philosophical grounds, which many have been taking advantage of. At the same time, the outbreak in the area has also created a demand for the vaccine. Last January, about 530 people in southwest Washington received the measles vaccination, whereas this January, that number has jumped to around 3,000, according to the Washington State Health Department. The state's health secretary is pushing lawmakers to pass a bill to make harder for parents of school-aged children to opt out of combined measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine. Last week, hundreds of anti-vacciners held a rally to protest this move. With more on what is occurring, we are joined here in studio by Paul Offit, who's director of vaccine education of the Vaccine Education Center, excuse me, and a professor of pediatrics at, at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Uh, Paul is also author of the book uh, "Bad Advice." Uh, or why celebrities, politicians, and activists aren't your best source of health information. Also joining us, Dr. Peter J. Hodes, who is Dean of the National School of Tropical Medicine at Baylor University's College of Medicine, as well as co-director of the Texas Children's Hospital Center for Vaccine Development. And also with us is Daniel Salmon, who is a director of the Institute for Vaccine Safety at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. He's also former director of vaccine safety in the Department of Health and Human Services. Paul, great seeing you again. Thank you. Thank you. Great to have you. Peter, Daniel, great to have you with us today. Thank you both. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having us. Thank you both. Uh, I guess, uh, Paul, let's start out with this outbreak. And do we know at this point how this actually came about, the one in, in Washington and Oregon? It came about because a critical number of parents decided not to vaccinate their children. If you look at, at who's been affected by this outbreak, uh, invariably it's children less than 10 years of age whose parents had chosen not to vaccinate them. And when herd immunity phrase, measles is often the first virus infection to come back because it's so highly contagious. Peter? Yeah, that's absolutely right. So once the decline's below a certain amount, measles is like a biomarker for decreases in number of kids getting vaccinated. In fact, we uh, put an article out in the Public Library of Science last year looking at the hotspot areas where vaccine coverage was alarmingly low. And it turned out that Clark County, uh, Washington, neighboring Portland was one of them. So this was both predicted and predictable. Dan, your thoughts on this outbreak? It's exactly as the other guests say. I mean, what we see with measles is that there's these communities that have low vaccine rates overall at the state level, the national level. Most children are vaccinated on time. It is the social norm. But you have communities where a lot of people refuse vaccines. And what happens is somebody travels uh, to a part of the world or from a part of the world that has a lot of measles. Often it's Europe and brings it back. And we see an outbreak as we see now. 
So how much, though, Dan, is this also uh, somewhat of a, a legislative battle uh, because of the rules and the laws that are in place in a variety of states? I, I note that because, I guess, in Oregon, uh, on, on where this uh, outbreak had taken place, there's also the rule that uh, anybody that's 15 and older can actually make that decision themselves. They don't have to necessarily go to the parents for that call. Well, for measles, most of the cases we see are among younger children. And, you know, I don't think this is a legislative problem, though there have been states that have tried to take a legislative solution. So we saw a large measles outbreak in California, and largely because of that outbreak, they removed non-medical exemptions. So Washington state has recently made their exemptions more difficult to get, and they saw a drop in the frequency of parents claiming exemptions but evidently that wasn't enough of a solution as we see an outbreak now. Paul? No, I agree. I think that, um, you know, at some point we're going to have to ask ourselves the question in this country, is it your right as a United States citizen to allow your child to catch and transmit a potentially fatal infection? I think what happened in California was um, emblematic. You had a uh, a state where, at least in the southern portion of that state in 2014, there was uh, uh, they were the epicenter of an epidemic of measles that then spread to 25 states. It spread up into Mexico. It spread, uh, sorry, down into Mexico, up into Canada, involved about 189 people. And their solution, as, as Dan said, was was to eliminate their philosophical exemption, which meant they only had a medical exemption. They became the third state only to have a medical exemption, and immunization rates went up. So I think I do think where the rubber meets the road is at some level um, legislation. I, I don't think it's a complete solution, but I think it helps. Peter? Yeah, I agree. I you know I agree that legislation is not the whole answer, but it's at least the first step. We have 18 states in the U.S. that still allow non-medical exemptions for philosophical or personal belief reasons. And and when we looked, we found that most of the big hot spots where kids aren't getting vaccinated are indeed uh, scattered in those 18 states. So I think it, it would make a difference. And I think you know as a as, as Paul says, I think as a, as a child, you have a fundamental right to be protected against deadly infectious diseases. I think it's a, a right of childhood, and it's very unfortunate that what we're seeing in, in Washington State and Oregon and else, other places in the 18 states are uh, parents, uh, our kids are basically being deprived of a fundamental right of childhood and parents making poor decisions just on the basis of a massive misinformation campaign being put out now by the anti-vaccine lobby. Peter, what do you, what do you say to, the, to, to those people that, that are out there protesting at, at this point? Well, I, I, in some ways they're, they're victims, uh, and they're victims uh, from this extraordinary uh, misinformation campaign that's been out there now for a number of years. It started out in the late 1990s, kind of as a, a small fringe group, but now it's grown into a bit of a media empire. By some estimates, there are almost 500 anti-vaccine websites out there, all amplified on Facebook and other social media. They're putting out phony books. They're putting out phony documentaries. And now they've become politicized so that many of the states, like here in Texas and neighboring Oklahoma and elsewhere, we've got actually political action committees lobbying state legislatures and raising uh, money for candidates to run an anti-vaccine platform. So there's a whole anti-vaccine ecosystem out there that the three of us are all uh, unfortunately up against on a regular basis. So, Paul, this has almost become a little bit of a cottage industry out there right now. 
Yeah, it has. And it would be interesting, I think, for an investigative journalist to take it on. I mean, to look at exactly who funds these 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 groups. I mean, who paid for movies like Vax or now Vax 2? I mean, who who pays for the Gardasil girls, if you will? I mean, Gardasil, the HPV vaccine was first yeah. licensed in 2006. Who paid for them to sort of travel from, from state to state? Uh, you know who 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 funds this? Uh, who when, when you know I spoke to the National Press Club uh, a few weeks ago, and, and there was there were a group of women who were there who were also there in Atlanta when I was at the CDC meeting. Some of them are from Washington State and Oregon. Who pays for their travel? It would be interesting for a, an investigative journalist to take this on. But good luck with that, because take on sort of a politically active, sort of media savvy group of, of angry parents, and you're you're in for it. But it, it, going back, and obviously we've seen you know a few more instances of, of measles outbreaks in the last four or five years or so but prior to that the 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 country we had 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 a really strong handle on on measles in general in the united states exactly so i mean so the measles vaccine came in around 1963 at that time millions of children would get measles Forty-eight thousand would be hospitalized and 500 would die every year and we had a dramatic decrease in 89 91 we had again sort of a surge where we saw about fifty thousand children get measles so we had a second dose recommendation with that second dose recommendation by the year 2000 we eliminated measles from this country Yet it's back. And last year we had a little less than, than 400 cases. This year we're off to a bad start. So the question is, when does it get bad enough where, where people stand up and say this is enough? How many children have to suffer or worse die before we say this has gone too far? Peter? Yeah, I absolutely agree. And uh, finally, I had to, uh, to take a step because, you know, when I, you know, one of the problems that I found was uh, this was going on here in Texas in a terrible way, where I'm, I'm based at Texas Children's Hospital and Baylor College of Medicine. We now have over uh, 60,000 kids not getting vaccinated, and those are the ones we know about. There are over 300,000 homeschooled kids here in Texas, so we probably have over 100,000 kids not getting their vaccine. So, you know, if you think things are bad in Washington and Oregon, uh, I think things will happen on a much larger scale here in Texas, especially where the vaccine exemptions are uh, are concentrated. So I went out and did something interesting. I wrote a book uh, because I'm a vaccine scientist and pediatrician like like Paul and and uh, and also I'm a parent of an adult daughter who has autism and intellectual disability. So I wrote a book called Vaccines Did Not Cause Rachel's Autism. Very straightforward title which goes into the detail uh, debunking the major assertion of the anti-vaccine lobby that vaccines cause autism, explaining how autism begins in prenatal development well before they ever see vaccines, and what it's like for both Rachel and, and, and her parents uh, uh, living on the autism spectrum. And, and that's been really interesting to see how aggressive uh, the, the anti-vaccine lobby gang tackles and uh, really uh, attacks you. I would imagine, Dan, that also part of this goes to the education side of this because of the fact that, you know, we're talking about kids that that, that would normally be in school. Uh, obviously, a variety of children are, are, uh, are not in school because of this outbreak out in Washington and Oregon. I noted New York uh, before where there are, are uh, quite a few kids that have had to be out of school for upwards of, of two months because of what has been going on in New York State as well. So it's typical that a school will exclude children that aren't fully immunized when there's an outbreak, and that's really to protect those children and to prevent the outbreak from spreading further. There's a lot of discussion of religious versus philosophical exemptions, and our studies have shown that states that have philosophical exemptions not only have higher rates of exemptions, but also higher rates of pertussis. But we've also found that it's not just what you call the exemption, but it's how it's implemented and enforced. 
and there's a lot of variability within states and between states. And regardless of whether it's called philosophical or religious, states that make it more difficult to get exemptions have lower rates of exemptions and less pertussis. Um, there's a lot of talk of you know the anti-vaccine movement, and certainly they are well-organized and very media-savvy. But I think the larger issue, you know, very few people are ideologically opposed to vaccines. They may be well-organized and vocal, but it's a tiny minority of the population. But far more parents have concerns. And the last national estimates were more than 7 out of 10 parents had concerns, and, and 3 out of 10 had kind of more serious concerns about how many vaccines are given at once or in the first couple of years of life. And, right. and some of this doesn't feel intuitive to parents. They look at a, a precious little baby that seems perfect and look at the number of shots and, and parents may have concerns. They may be reinforced by misinformation on the Internet. But these aren't parents that are ideologically opposed to vaccines. These are parents that are uh, trying to do what's right for their child. And they're that's not clear to them, and we need to make that clear to them. And education has a really important role there. Um, I don't think mass media campaigns are the way to go, but we need to be able to work with these parents, healthcare right. providers, have a really, really important role because we know they're trusted by parents, by most parents. Even parents who are hesitant to vaccinate tend to really trust their doctor. And the pediatrician, the family physician has a really important role. Uh, public health can also find ways of educating people, but those messages need to be tailored. They need to be specific to the parents. They need to emphasize that vaccine, vaccines is the default option. This is the standard of care. Right. This is what should be done. And then for parents that have concerns, um, you know, we need to listen to them. We need to hear them. We need to connect with them where there are common values, the desire to protect the child and address those concerns, emphasize that there is a risk of disease, and uh, do what we can to get those children protected. Paul? Yeah, Dan's a little more optimistic than I am. I think that, that while most parents who, who call me, I think, really have just smelled the smoke and want to know whether there's any fire there, I think they are reassurable by giving information in a passionate and compassionate and compelling way. But there right. is a solid 15% of parents out there who are, frankly, conspiracy theorists. They're just, sure. They just believe that the pharmaceutical industry is is sort of leading around you know, the medical establishment and the government by their, their nose and that – that they don't believe anything you say. And so what about their ch the children of those parents? I mean, what do you do? And I, the terms, and Dan brought this up, I think it's an interesting way of putting it, the, the, the terms are weird. You know, philosophical exemption, I mean, philo, love, sophos, wisdom, where is the wisdom that says it's better not to get a vaccine than to get one? The one that upsets me the most, actually, is religious exemptions. I mean, every religion teaches you to care about your children. Every, every religion values health. It's the opposite of a religious thing to do. So, you know, and it's very easy to hide behind religion. Nobody likes to tell people to how to practice their faith or how to raise their children, and so people stand back when you say, this is my religious belief, but there's nothing religious about it. Peter, your thoughts? Well, I think we're in this race, and I agree with, with, with both Paul and Dan. I mean, I think the big problem right now is the uh, anti-vaccine lobby has mastered the Internet. They control the Internet. If you, any parent who puts the word vaccine into a search engine, whether it's Google or Yahoo or anything else, is going to get this glut of uh, a misinformation. Uh, and then it gets, all gets amplified on social media. Then there's the books, the documentaries, and everything else. So, so we are losing that battle, and we have to start really thinking about important ways to fight back and, and, and really protect our children because uh, they're the ones who are suffering the most. I mean, I feel terrible for... 
the uh, infants under the age of 12 months living now in, in Washington State. They're the ones who are at greatest risk of hospitalization for measles, pneumonia, and measles encephalitis. And if you're a parent now living in Clark County, you have to be worried about going into Walmart or the public library or any public public setting. And it's a, so it's a completely self-inflicted wound by allowing the anti-vaccine lobby to have such mastery of, of the internet. And I think there are stra important strategies to fight back. I tried to write a book, but, you know, I'm, I'm an academic writing a book. I don't know how much yeah. bandwidth that's really going to have. We really need to uh, figure this out in a much more substantive way. You're listening to Knowledge of Wharton here on Sirius XM 132 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. We're talking about the uh, measles outbreak in uh, Washington State and Oregon and the impact that uh, it is having uh, not only in that part of the country, but around the United States and a lot of the uh, the issues uh, surrounding vaccination or not to vaccinate your children. Uh, Paul Offit from uh, the University, or I should say from Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, uh, joining me here in studio. Uh, Peter J. Hodes of uh, Baylor University and Texas Children's Hospital on the phone, along with uh, Daniel Salmon from uh, Johns Hopkins University. I, I guess then the question is, if you continue to... Uh, you know, you're trying to put the the proper information out there, Dan. How do you kind of break through this barrier when you have such an entity that seemingly has a mastery of the internet and and a mastery of of, uh, uh, of telling their own story and, and seemingly making it effective? Well, I think there's a lot we can do, but we need to also be aware of the larger social political issues. I mean, we're at a time and place where there's a real growth in alternative medicine. And, you know, vaccines are embraced by, by Western medicine because there's so much evidence to show how effective they are. We're at a place where there's a world of alternative facts. And large proportions of the public will believe things they're told when they're not supported by evidence. And what we have on our side is an awful lot of evidence that shows that vaccines are extremely safe and extremely effective. But facts alone may not win the argument. We have to learn how to communicate them effectively. We need to invest resources into understanding how people think, how people make decisions, how frequently concerns are out there, how to most effectively address those concerns. And uh, at the end of the day, we have science on our side, but we need to make sure that we can communicate that with credibility and, and effectively. Peter? Well, I think there. I agree. There, I think there's three components to this. Uh, you know, if I were to, you know, if you were to ask me who's to blame for this measles epidemic uh, in Washington State and Oregon, overwhelmingly, it's this very aggressive anti-vaccine lobby and and uh, their uh, the use of internet and other and other means of communication. But also, you have uh, in these 18 states. Uh, state legislators who have allowed themselves to be played by the anti-vaccine lobby. And I think closing the vaccine exemptions will help somewhat. But we still, there's still a vacuum. And the vacuum is our national system of vaccine advocacy, I think, is not as robust uh, as it could be. And we've got to figure out a way where we continue to hear these positive reinforcing messages about why vaccines are safe, why they do not cause autism, or some of the other things the anti-vaccine lobby alleges. So I think that could be uh, bolstered and strengthened as well. Is there a segment, Paul, of, of the anti-vaccine lobby that is actually coming with information from the medical community? Because I would think if, if you're somebody, if you're a parent, and you're trying to make that decision, the first person I want to listen to is my pediatrician or family doctor, whoever that might be, 
because they're the person that deals with us on, on, on the front lines. That's why you're not the problem. I think yeah. the, the problem is, you know, for it's not hard to find, as, as Peter said earlier, on the Internet information that sort of fits with whatever your bias is, even in the scientific literature. I mean, there's 6,500 medical and scientific journals in the world. They publish roughly 4,000 papers a day and not surprisingly follow a bell-shaped curve. Some studies are excellent. Some are awful. Most are more or less mediocre. You can really find a study that really supports your fears and then bring it to your pediatrician and say, this, this, I don't want this. But I think, I think, I guess I agree, agree with Peter, something Peter said in part, but not whole. I, I really agree with what he said earlier about the fact that this war is being waged on social media. I, I think, you know, whether it's it's uh, Instagram or, or uh, Twitter or, or, the fa- or Facebook, I mean, Pinterest recently pretty much made it where anti-vaccine information can't be on their site anymore. So it's possible. Right. I think in terms of a, a national system, you know, like, like, say, the CDC stepping forward and doing this, I just don't think they would be great at it. And, and I'm not sure you necessarily want them to do it. What I like is that there are a variety of groups. I mean, like Peter, you know, with his book, you know, that, you know, one after the next after the next, it gets out there to try and force it, push, push back. I do think in many ways we're winning. If you, we being the side of science is winning. If you look at the way this story was covered 15 years ago, it was often you would see Barbara Fisher or J.B. Hanley or Lynn Redwood or Sally Bernard. I mean, sort of the, the professional anti-vaccine yeah. people would always be the one-stop shop for the quote-unquote parents' point of view. That's not true anymore. I think that when they hooked their star to Andrew Wakefield and Andrew Wakefield came crashing down, at some level they came crashing down with them. And I do think also, I think you would see this anyway. I think this is the natural history of an immunization program. I mean, you don't have to give it to my parents to be vaccinated. There were children of the 20s and 30s. They saw diphtheria. They saw polio as a crippler. Yeah. I was a child of the 50s. I had measles, mumps, rubella, chickenpox. So I had all those disease. But my children, who were in their in their mid-20s, they don't see these disease. They, they didn't grow up with these disease. I mean, for them, this is a matter of faith. So I do think, at, and in any case, we would have had to have re-explained ourselves. And I think this erosion you're seeing, we would have seen anyway at some level. How do you deal, though, with the, the actual instance of, of, of measles popping up here in the United States? As you mentioned, going back a couple of decades, it was eradicated. And especially how do you deal with it when it's potentially somebody bringing it in from another country? I think I think the the problem it, vaccines have been a victim of their own success. So so it's not just that people don't fear these diseases anymore; they don't remember these diseases anymore. I mean, you'll you'll yeah. have you'll have some of these these yeah. uh, parents get up and said and basically say that they'll say I'll take the measles every time. Then they don't know what measles is because measles was a killer. Measles made you sick, and I think yeah. I'd like to think we can make that vivid and alive without it actually coming alive. Meaning yeah. that we can make people understand that children can die from this infection without actually having children do die, dying from this infection because it's. It's hard to watch. I feel like it's a very dangerous game that we play, and I, I feel like we're falling off a cliff in slow motion a little bit here. Dan? Yeah, so I agree with Paul that this is a historic um, circumstance we find ourselves in when we've effectively controlled diseases from vaccines. But measles hasn't been eradicated. It's still in the world. It's been eliminated right. from the U.S., right. meaning at most points in time, there's no measles in the U.S., though at this moment there is. But we see what can happen in Europe. There's tens of thousands of cases and children are dying. And ultimately, we're going to have to maintain extremely high vaccine coverage for measles and other diseases um, everywhere. And we have to do that perhaps indefinitely if we're not able to eradicate the disease. So we need to have a credible voice. And I don't know that CDC is the best voice for that. I I wish the Surgeon General would speak for the science here um, or some other group that will be well respected and believed broadly. Uh, We're not going to convince the 1% that are truly ideologically opposed to vaccines. But it's the majority of parents we really need to be focused on. And we need solid science 
and we need to communicate that in a credible, effective way. Peter? Yeah, I think the other central tenet besides their claim that vaccines cause autism, their other big piece of misinformation is they minimize the impact of these diseases. I have a kid's book in my office called Melanie's Marvelous Measles that claims that measles is good for your immune system. Uh, It ignores the inconvenient truth that in the 80s and 90s, measles was the single leading killer of children in the world, and it's only because of the Global Alliance for Vaccines and Immunization that we've brought those deaths down to around 100,000, down from 2 million. Uh, But this could easily come back. And so I think that's another uh, myth that we've got to be able to uh, diffuse. Great having you all with us today. Paul, great seeing you again. Thank you for coming in. Peter, Daniel, thank you for your time on the phone today. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you very much. Have a great day. Thank you. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.